Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from the Monash University Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. My name is John Palmer. So, for most of history, and indeed in many parts of the world still today, the suntan was not seen to be particularly desirable. It wasn't seen to be beautiful or attractive. Um, the popular theory for why this might be seems to be a class analysis. Uh, if you were a peasant, you toiled in the fields and you got sunburned and suntanned. If you were a lord or a lady, you sat around in your high-walled garden in the shade, sipping exotic cordials, uh, and thus got a lily-white, tender skin. That was a sign of your refinement. Uh, but at some point, all of that changed, at least in Western culture. One popular theory is that this was all down to Coco Chanel, who was a fashion designer in the early 20th century. She went sailing on the French Riviera. She came home with a tan and everybody decided that was an amazing way to be. And history is full of examples of things that have fallen into and out of fashion because of a single person. Unfortunately for this theory, which is a lovely one, the timing doesn't quite line up. Uh, it looks like people in the West have been into tans for quite some time prior to the existence of Coco Chanel. An academic formerly of Warwick University, now at the University of Surrey in the UK, called Charlotte Matheson, has written a really, really sort of compelling account of how she thinks it came to pass that tan came into fashion uh, with references to Victorian literature. There are lots of characters in Victorian literature who are sort of romantic, exotic, adventurous seasoned travellers and their suntan becomes the visual identifier of that. That's how you know somebody is exotic and adventurous. They've spent all their time outside furthering the interests of empire and, and having adventures and the sun tan lets you know that they're kind of an alpha and they're desirable and mysterious and so forth. Obviously, this uh, change in aesthetics has had some pretty calamitous effects. Uh, one statistic you'll hear in this episode is that fully two-thirds of Australians will be diagnosed with skin cancer by the age of 70. And the fascinating thing to me is that arguably the most powerful weapon we have in the war against this incredibly deadly enemy is not some dizzyingly complex high-tech medicine of the kind that we often investigate on this podcast. It is, in fact, the humble sunscreen. And look, I'm sure all of our interviews would be at great pains to stress that the solution is, in fact, multifactorial. It's not just sunscreen. But nonetheless, sunscreen is an essential ingredient. So that's what this episode is about. Sunscreen. Today's show has actually been put together by Dr. Amy Chen and Divya Krishnan, and they have a fascinating episode for you, because they look not only at the science of sunscreen, but also the social and cultural factors involved in its use. We got a couple of really interesting uh, interviews on that subject. Uh, the first one is with Melissa Miles from the Monash School of Art, Design and Architecture about a piece of culture that is probably the apex of that Australian sun worship. If you think about that archetype of the bronze dozzy and you were to try and locate it the epicenter of that idea and in its most concentrated form, you'd probably come up with the photograph Sunbaker by Max Dupain, which you may not think you know it, but I promise you, Google it, you definitely know it. And so Melissa kind of charts its cultural life for us, talks about the circumstances of its production, the various meanings it's taken on and, and critiques of it. Then Divya speaks with Dr. Mugda Rai about a piece of culture that is arguably the antithesis of Sunbaker. It's a public health campaign that really moved the needle in terms of how we thought about the sun. Mugda talked about why the campaign was so successful and asks whether something similar would even be possible today. We've got Ian Larson who gives us the really, really important information about how to actually apply sunscreen correctly and how to get the best out of it. Um, stick around for that, really important. And then we also talked with one of our PhD students, Stefan Nebel, 
and he unpacks the bit that is a real mystery for me. How does this thing that is absolutely invisible to me once I apply it appears to have no effect other than perhaps making my skin feel slightly greasy? How does this invisible thing protect me against light? And then finally, and this is the really important this episode might save your life stuff, we have an interview with Monash oncologist Mark Shackleton, who talks a little bit about how skin cancer works, exactly what it is, and why it's so incredibly dangerous. And he finishes with a really strong explanation of what to look out for if you're checking your own moles. So, fascinating episode with some really important stuff. And look, I've got to be honest, we've let it run a little bit longer than most of our other episodes, but I promise you it's worth it. Normally we try and keep things under 40 minutes, but um, we, we failed today. Amy and Div have done a great job, so I'll turn you over to their more than capable hands. I'm Dr. Amy Chen. And I'm Divya Krishnan, and I'm going to kick it off by asking you, Amy, what does Australian summer, and I guess to an extent sunscreen, look like to you? When I moved here, like roughly 15 years ago, my idea of Australia is just pure sun, sunshine and beaches. Like that's what I thought everyday life in Australia would be like, because that's all you see in the tourism um, campaigns, like in the advertisement. There is something very quintessential about Australian summer. And that's why we're chatting with Professor Melissa Miles, Associate Dean of Research at the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture, to talk about a very iconic and I suppose quintessentially Australian photograph, Sunbaker. If you imagine a fit, healthy, tanned, young Anglo-Australian man lying on his stomach on the beach, his head's resting on his folded arms and you can tell that he's just come out from a swim because his hair and his skin are wet and he's plonked himself down on the beach on his stomach. And what Max Dupain has done is photographed him by getting down really low to the sand and pointing his camera towards the top of his head. So all we can see is the man's head, his folded arms and his very muscular shoulders. And the composition split in half with the sand at the bottom half and the sky at the top half and this form of the man's body right in the centre. So it's a real celebration of lying in the sun on the beach. And why did that specific photo out of everything else he's done become such an icon here in Australia? What, what did it represent or what does it represent for us? Well, what's really interesting about Sunbaker is that it took a very long time for it to become an iconic Australian image. Um, Max Dupain actually took two versions of the Sunbaker. Both of them were taken at Culborough Beach in New South Wales on the south coast, um, and they were taken in 1937, so quite a long time ago. And at the time, there was a really strong belief in the life-giving and restorative qualities of sunshine. So being out in the sun at that time was seen as being great for your physical health and your mental well-being. The slightly different version of the photograph that we know today was first published in 1948. So it wasn't even published for 11 years after it was taken. But that negative was lost. Um, Dupain exhibited the version that we know today for the first time in 1975 when he was 64 years old um, and that photograph was chosen for the poster of the exhibition um, of his work at the Australian Centre for Photography. So it started to become well known then but it didn't really become a national icon until the 1980s, some 50 years or so after the photograph was taken. 
Um, and since then, it's been used in Qantas advertising. It's been parodied in all kinds of other ads and images and really taken off. So what's interesting in terms of Sunshine is that it became big in the 80s after the Slip Slop Slap campaign was out and we were all aware of being sun smart. But it took off um, in Australia, I think, for a number of reasons. First of all, in the 1980s, there was a growing interest in Australian photography as art. And secondly, the photograph really spoke to some popular myths in Australian beach culture personified in that image of the bronzed lifesaver that we see. And it was particularly big in the 80s, um, particularly big in connection to national identity. And what's really powerful, I think, about and what's really effective about Max Dupain's photograph is that it could be taken at any time. There's no sense of fashion, there's no street, there's nothing that could locate it in a particular time. So whether you're in the 70s, 80s or 90s, you can look at that photograph and, as you said earlier, you, you can imagine being on any beach in Australia at any time. People can relate to it across time. So it's really representing this idea of beach culture as part of national Australian identity. Um, since the 80s and, and in the 90s in particular, there's been much more critique about that kind of beach culture that it was representing. This is Max Dupain's photograph is very much an Anglo-Australian masculine figure and some other photographers and Writers have commented on how that's quite an exclusive approach to Australian beach culture and they're looking at other types of cultural identities, gender identities um, connected to the beach as well. Um, but it's a, quite an interesting image in terms of health and the beach because, at the, as I said before, at the time it was a real personification of health being in the sun. Sun baking was seen as a healthy thing to do. But now, obviously... We are more aware of those dangers. So we've heard of Sun Baker, but I think you could also tell us a bit more about a photograph called the Sun Bather, which I'd love to know a bit more about. Yes, that's a photograph by an Australian photographer called Anza Hulker, and she did a kind of parody of Max Dupain's Sun Baker in 1989. So it's the same kind of shot, very low to the sand, looking towards the head of the Sun Bather. But instead of having a black and white photograph of a bronzed man, she has a colour photograph with a very fair-skinned, red-headed, androgynous figure lying on the beach. And you can almost hear that skin sizzling in the sun. It's a very striking image with this blue, blue sky, red, red hair and fair skin. So it was really commenting on that gendered approach as well to Max Dupain's Sunbaker, but also questioning whether really is, is this appropriate for the times when we know about um, SunSmart campaigns and the dangers of lying in the sun. It's a really, it's quite a striking image. You look at that image and think, oh, you're really aware of the dangers of lying in the sun. And it really, really sheds light on on the fact that Max Dupain's Sunbaker does represent a particular idea about beauty and its connection to health and masculinity at that time, um, particularly its connections to tanned skin and the connection between tanned skin and athleticism. Um, it's a really 
it seems like a timeless photograph, but when you look at it in relation to other photographs now, when you really think about where we're at now culturally, it is a particular photograph of its time in its representation of beauty and bodies. So one of the things that Melissa referred to was the Slip Slop Slap campaign. And she said that Slip Slop Slap, and we knew what it meant, and you probably knew what it meant too. We didn't need any further explanation, which is probably the best example of its success, that Slip Slop Slap is now one of the most effective public health campaigns in the world. So before we carry on, I should mention that I used to work for the Cancer Council. So it would be remiss of me not to mention that it is now Slip Slop Slap Seek Slide. So that's slip on a shirt, slop on some sunscreen, slap on a hat, seek some shade, and slide on some sunnies. And slip, slop, slap, and seek, slide is now very much part of our daily vocabulary. We know exactly what it means, especially in the summer. So we actually spoke with Dr. Mugda Rai, lecturer in the School of Media, Film and Journalism, and the director of the Master of Strategic Communications Management to find out why that campaign has been so effective. We sort of long recognised the role that media and communications play um, in setting agendas. Um, they sort of tell us what's important. What do we need to be thinking about, paying attention to? What are the things we need to be concerned about? Uh, I think the current environment is a very good example of that. Obviously, this year um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen how much media and communications have taken centre stage in terms of how all of us um, are beholden, you know, in, in here in Victoria, for example, to daily press briefings from Dan Andrews to find out what the latest is to find out what we should be worried about, um, what the latest advice is on what precautions we should take. So clearly, um, there's an enormous role here in terms of how media signal to us what the most important concerns are that we should have. And in the context of public health, where often a lot of the issues themselves can be quite technical and quite scientific and quite difficult for ordinary people to access easily, um, they will turn to media to, to make sense of it for them. I think what was very interesting about the Slip Slop campaign from, from when I sort of look at it is it was not fear-based. A lot of public health campaigns can be fear-based. So, of course, around a similar era, we had the HIV AIDS campaigns, the Grim Reaper campaigns, um, and they were markedly different in their approach. They were all about fear. They were all about, they also became quite famous around the world, in fact, because of how incredibly dark and grim they actually were. Um, but they were very much sort of highlighting this, you know, sense of death and danger and, 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 and the great sort of catastrophe we faced from the threat of HIV AIDS. Um, interestingly, a very different approach was taken with the Slip Slop Slap campaign. Um, if they had chosen, a similar thing could have been done. They could have had a fear-based campaign that showed horrible images of skin cancer and people dying in terrible ways. Um, but they made a choice to do something quite different because it really was about encouraging changes in behaviour. And I think what was very distinct about the campaign is we know it was very upbeat, it was catchy and very easy to remember. And I think that approach was very effective because it had this clear educational message where these are the steps you can take. These are small, simple steps. And if you take these small, simple steps, you can protect yourself. So it was much more about educating and helping people understand what they could do. 
what was clear in the campaign was that there was a direction, you know, given the animation, given the very catchy jingle, there was an orientation towards children, clearly, as well, a message that would be easy enough for children to understand. So one of the biggest challenges today for public health campaigns, I think, is how much the media environment has changed. So in the 1981, you could have a public health campaign that ran on mainstream television and be fairly confident that everyone would see it. Um, Or you could run the jingle on the radio, you could take out an ad in a newspaper. That media environment, of course, has changed a lot today. With the vast majority of young people and older moving on to digital and social media for most of their information, for most of their daily interaction and communication, it, it creates a much more fragmented media space. So if you have a strong public health message that you want to get across, it's not so easy necessarily to know what medium you should be using. And as we know, social media has particular peculiarities about it. So even though you could say that, oh, well, I could run the same ad on Facebook or I can post the same ad on Twitter, but again, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that everyone will see it and everyone will watch it. Because as we know, um, with social media, our use is very controlled by us and tailored to us and our news feeds are customized to us. So the ability to get the kind of saturated coverage you could have got when people only relied on traditional media sources, um, I think is one of the bigger challenges today of getting that message through. So if you're trying to get through to a 17 or 18-year-old, they're probably not watching Channel 9 News. They're probably not watching ABC News either. They're probably not reading The Age either. So it becomes harder to know what you should be doing to make sure that that young person has watched your ad campaign. In the creation of this episode, we've been discussing a lot about the attitudes, not just to just a sunscreen, but to how it impacts beauty ideals. I remember seeing in India and even hearing from my own grandmother that I should use Fair and Lovely just to, <laughs> just to stay pale, which, you know, at the end of the day isn't as possible here in Australia as we'd like it to be. And do you think sunscreen has or will continue or does not have an impact on beauty ideals? And if we compare it to other countries where fairness is considered the superior option as opposed to, as you said here, it's the idea is to look glowing. It's a it's a really good question. And, and, and I think the whole issue of, you know, as we know, the issue of, of skin colour is so culturally relative and complicated. You're absolutely right. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a complete, um, you know, contradiction in terms. So obviously, in a lot of Asian countries um, that have quite hot climates, people spend the better part of their lives hiding from the sun because they want to stay lighter skinned. And they see themselves getting darker skinned as a, as a aesthetically not- good thing. Whereas, of course, in much of the Western world, um, you know, the minute the warmer months come, people are sort of rushing out to build that tan that, that, you know, they didn't have over the winter months. And I think there is a huge um, contradiction here. I mean, I, I think sunscreen does have a role to play. I wish it didn't, though. To be perfectly honest, I wish sunscreen could just be what it was supposed to be about, which is 
protecting your skin and keeping your skin healthy and preventing you from being exposed to any higher risk of skin cancer than you need to be. Um, I think the cosmetic stuff complicates it more than it should need to. And that's, that's problematic. So as you say, you know, we've had creams that, that are always trying to touch upon beauty ideals in different ways. So whether in the West, it's, um, you know, when it's tailored at, at, at Western centric audiences, it'll be sunscreens that have tints in them so that your skin can be tinted in that way. It's artificial tinted and you don't need to have it get a tan um, deliberately whereas then in countries like India um, and the Middle East and other parts of the world we have these creams that are then as you've rightly pointed out about whitening and lightening the skin um, which has its own problematic connotations about what beauty should be Um, so I think to, to me to be perfectly honest I think sunscreen as being specifically what it's for, which is protecting us from the harmful amount of UV that our skin would otherwise absorb, would ideally be what its purpose should have been. But I think we are going to increasingly see sunscreen. And I think this it's especially true, as I say, as people become adults, because we tend to be, you know, we have a lot more things to do. We're a bit more rushed. We want to not have so many different things we need to do. And so having it as part of whatever our cosmetic regime for the morning may have been, um, certainly makes it easier. One of the concerns that does arise from that, of course, which um, organisations like the Cancer Council have often raised, is the minute sunscreen is mixed up with cosmetics, um, it's not always necessarily clear whether it's as effective So there is reasons that there is sort of evidence to suggest that not all the sunscreen that is is used in cosmetics is necessarily at the level it needs to be to actually offer proper protection. You know, I, I actually don't know how much is enough. So, you know, in preparation for this episode, I did a bit of research into sunscreen and I found a really interesting fact about it. Did you know that the first commercial sunscreen was developed by an Australian? I did not know this at all. Yeah, it was made by a South Australian man from Adelaide called H.A. Milton Blake. It actually took him 10 years of experimentation to develop a cream that can prevent sunburn. And in 1932, he established a company to sell one of the first commercial sunscreen. And that company, Hamilton, is still around today. Obviously, the formulation of sunscreen has evolved over the years since 1932. And the active ingredients we use in sunscreen has changed over these years as well. So to find out more about sunscreen and including the appropriate application of sunscreen, I spoke to Dr. Ian Larson from the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences about it. So why do we want to protect ourselves from from the sun. So let's, first of all, let's look at some some data, some numbers from this. Let's be sort of evidence-based in the way that we look at things. Here's some, here's some figures from Australia. Two in three Australians will be diagnosed with skin cancer by the age of 70. Two in three. More than 2,000 Australians die from skin cancer each year. And Australia has one of the highest rates of skin cancer in the world. So that sort of puts it in perspective where we are two out of three Australians will be diagnosed with skin cancer by the time they're 70. So sunscreen is one of the measures we should be using to protect ourselves from damage from the sun. So first of all, what was sunscreen? What does it do? 
It protects our skins from UV rays. UV rays are the component of sunlight that does the damage. Now, sunlight's got a whole, you know, a lot of different um, radiation um, coming from it. There's infrared radiation, there's visible light coming from it, and there's also UV radiation coming from it as well. You know, UV light, visible light, that's what we see. Um, and that's what we can use a prism to sort of see the rainbow color when we split up the visible light. UV, so UV's got more energy than both visible light and infrared light, and it's the UV radiation from the sun that causes the damage. So sunscreen, just very simply, protects our skin from um, UV radiation. When we look at when we look at some sunscreen, look at a bottle of sunscreen, tube of sunscreen, or we see the ads on the telly or on the newspaper or listen to them on the radio, they talk about, sometimes they talk about different kinds of UV radiation, which ones that that particular product um, is most effective against. So there's sort of three main types of UV radiation in sunlight. There's UVA, UVB, and UVC. UVA, amongst those three types of UV rays, UVA has got the least energy. UVA rays, they cause the skin cells to age. Their UVA rays are linked to long-term skin damage, such as wrinkling, and they're also thought that they play some role in some skin cancers. UVB, that has got more energy than UVA, and UVB is linked to direct damage of our skin cells. UVB is the main cause of sunburn, and UVB is thought to play the main role in most skin cancers. So UVB is more dangerous than UVA. The third kind of UV ray is UVC. So UVC has got the highest energy out of any of the three types of UV radiation. But thankfully for us, the ozone layer screens out um, and blocks UVC rays. So, so um, UVC doesn't reach us down here. So UVB, that's the one that, that is the most dangerous of the UVA and UVB. UVB caused the most damage. And so um, some products are specifically designed to block or to filter out UVB, so that UVB can't cause damage to our skin. But UVA, remember UVA also causes damage to our skin. It's the one that, that causes the premature wrinkling of our skin, the premature aging of our skin. And it's possible that there is some link between UVA exposure and some forms of skin cancer. So we should be concerned about UVA as well. So from a protective point of view, we should be getting something that's labelled as a broad spectrum sunscreen. So broad spectrum covers both UVA and UVB. So it's protecting us from both kinds. Whereas something that talks about UVB isn't protecting us from UVA. And so it's not, not protecting us from all of the damage that we can be getting from the sun. I think there's a lot of misconception about what SPF stands for and how that um, relates to how people use the sunscreen. So Ian, can you talk a little bit more about what SPF is? When we're looking at our sunscreens, other than the first thing we should be looking for is broad spectrum. The second thing we should be looking for is the SPF rating. SPF, it stands for sun protection factor. The bigger the number means it gives us more protection. But we shouldn't be confused. It doesn't mean, say we're comparing SPF 15 to SPF 30, that doesn't really mean we can stay out for twice as long before we need to put some on again, before we need to reapply. Because if we go out at nine o'clock, the sun's reasonably weak at nine o'clock. One hour of exposure at nine o'clock in the morning 
is equal to 15 minutes at lunchtime. So then the amount of solar sort of energy we get over the day changes. So we shouldn't just think, oh, we can stay out here twice as long. Well, you could as long as it stayed at nine o'clock all of the time. A bigger number is better, but it's not everything. So in Australia, you can get SPF 15, you can get SPF 30, and you can get SPF 50 plus. And we normally think, okay, 50 plus has got to be better than 15. 50 is about three times better than 15. So that means it's three times as good. Well, it's not that simple. SPF 30, for example, it filters about 97% of the UVB rays. SPF 50 plus filters 98% of UVB rays. So there's only a 1% difference in the amount of UVB they're blocking. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, the numbers, it's, you know, 30, 50, 50 is nearly twice as much as 30, therefore it's twice as good as 30. We can't use it that way. And, and that's one of the confusing things about SPF ratings. So the higher the SPF is better, but we can't just think it's going to be twice as good because the number's twice as high. So let's talk more um, into detail about correct applications of sunscreen. And what is the right way of applying sunscreen? So the first thing is we've got to apply the sunscreen at least 20 minutes before we go out into the sun. If you're out in the sun and then you put the sunscreen on, you've already exposed your, your skin to some damage. So the Cancer Council, they recommend 20 minutes before you go out in the sun, you want to put your sunscreen on. In the US, the equivalent body over there, they recommend 30 minutes before you get exposed to the sun, you should put your sunscreen on. But somewhere around there, if we do wait that amount of time, then how much? And this is the thing that we in Australia tend not to really get at all. So you should be using one teaspoon of sunscreen for each arm, one teaspoon for each leg. So that's a teaspoon on your left arm, teaspoon on your right arm, teaspoon on your left leg, teaspoon on your right leg. So up to four teaspoons, teaspoon full on your back, teaspoon full on your front, and then a teaspoon full on your face and your neck. So that's sort of seven teaspoons of sunscreen we should be using when we're going out. And that's the thing, we tend to skimp the sunscreens these days, they feel really good, they spread really well. So we sort of squirt, squirt a little bit on the back of our hand and we rub it all the way up our arm, all the way back, both sides everywhere, up around our shoulders, Still, it's still smearing away, you go up onto your neck, you might even have a bit left to do your face. We spread it too thinly. And sure, it makes it last longer, but in fact, we're not getting the protection we need. And the third thing is we've got to reapply it. Every two hours, and that's regardless of whether the label says it or not. Every two hours, that's what the Cancer Council says. If you're swimming or you're really, you know, exercising really heavily, say you're sweating a lot, then you want to apply it more frequently than that. I am embarrassed to say I know very little or close to nothing about the science of sunscreen. I think most people um, can relate, um, which is why I spoke to Stefan Nebel, who's a medicinal chemistry PhD student from the Manash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, who explained it all to me. Generally speaking, there's two different types of sunscreens. There's what are called chemical and then physical sunscreens. This sort of distinction is, has kind of fallen out of favor in the scientific community. We tend to call them now inorganic and organic sunscreens. And this is because in chemistry, we refer to a chemical as organic if it contains carbon and inorganic if it doesn't. So Chemical sunscreens, aka organic sunscreens, basically contain small molecules that are built on 
carbon atoms. Whereas the inorganic or physical sunscreens don't have any carbon. And instead, they're built on something called metal oxides. The difference between these is actually really important in how they actually uh, function, how they block UV light. Talking first about the, uh, the, the physical sunscreens, as I mentioned, the main component of these physical sunscreens are metal oxides. So for example, uh, titanium dioxide or zinc oxide, you may have heard of zinc sunscreen, for example. To really understand how these nanoparticles of metal oxides block UV, you have to imagine sort of zooming down to the level of a single nanoparticle. Basically, these nanoparticles are, you can think of them like continuous networks of metal atoms bound to oxygen atoms in a really specific pattern. And all of these atoms sort of share electrons with each other. Now, normally these electrons are in a sort of low energy state, but if light of just a high enough energy, for example, UV light comes and interacts with the nanoparticle, that UV light can be absorbed, promoting the electrons to a higher energy state. When these electrons are in a higher energy state, that's sort of unstable. So quickly, the electrons want to relax back down to their ground state. And when they do that, they re-emit um, light, electromagnetic radiation, usually as infrared light, which in these quantities are harmless. It just results in a little bit of warming. And so it's actually a common misconception that these physical sunscreens uh, reflect UV light. In reality, they only reflect a tiny little amount, uh, around 5%, whereas they actually absorb and then re-emit the rest. Moving on to the other category of sunscreens, the uh, so-called chemical sunscreens. Uh, like I said before, these contain lots of small molecules built on carbon atoms. Because of this, they interact with UV in a slightly different way to the physical sunscreens. The active ingredient in these chemical sunscreens, like I said, are small carbon-containing molecules. Um, if you read the label of any of these sunscreens, you may see the word avobenzone, oxybenzone, octanoxate, these sorts of um, names. And the important property that all of these small molecules share is that they have something called conjugated aromatic rings. Not to get too deep into it, but basically this means that in their structure, they have delocalized electrons. So electrons that are able to move freely around the chemical structure. And just like in the case for physical sunscreens, when UV light comes and interacts with this molecule, the molecule can absorb that UV radiation, um, promoting the electrons to a higher energy state, so they're able to move freely through the structure because they're conjugated. This state is unstable, so when the electrons relax back down to their normal ground state, they re-emit the radiation again as infrared. Most people don't apply their sunscreen appropriately, mm. so um, you know we might not be applying enough, and we might not be applying early enough in advance. But is there a scientific reason why we need to apply? The sunscreen well in advance? Yeah, so there's a good scientific reason, but really it has nothing to do with the chemistry of the sunscreens. Basically, these sunscreens will block ultraviolet radiation straight out of the bottle. The reason that we're told to apply it well in advance is actually because we need to let it dry on our skin and dry evenly. If we put it on and then we quickly jump into the water, what's going to happen is some of that sunscreen is going to wash off and then we're not going to be properly protected. Same thing with putting on clothes. If you put on clothes straight away, you're going to be rubbing off some of that sunscreen. And that'll leave patches that aren't properly protected to UV. Think of sunscreen like paint, right? It's paint for your body, but it's paint that it's invisible to our eyes, but black to ultraviolet. 
I think the thing about skin cancer is because it's so prevalent in Australia that everyone seems to know a little bit about skin cancer. But I wanted to find out more about it, how it actually happens, what part of the skin is being affected. And I spoke to Professor Mark Shackleton, who is the Director of Oncology at Alfred Health and Professor of Oncology in the Department of Medicine at Monash University. And he actually told me a very interesting fact about why melanoma is the deadliest of skin cancers. The skin, many people may not know, is actually the largest organ in the body because uh, it covers a pretty big surface area. And it's also the part of our bodies that's probably more exposed than any other uh, to the environment. So because of those particular characteristics uh, and the nature of the exposure to, the, to an environmental hazard that the skin is subjected to, that is the sunlight, uh, it's actually the organ that's most commonly affected by cancer. So skin cancer collectively is the most common type of cancer by a long way, actually. In fact, just the two most common types of skin cancer, which are called basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, uh, uh, added together, uh, actually comprise the vast majority of human cancers. Thankfully, the vast majority of those types of cancers are very easily curable with usually just with simple surgery or sometimes other types of treatment. So in thinking about the different types of skin cancer, and there are several, uh, you really need to understand what's the normal anatomy of the skin and what are the different cell types that actually make up the skin? Because it's not just an homogenous uh, group of the same cells all just kind of clinging together. There are actually different subtypes of cells present within the skin. So the most common subtype of normal cells in the skin uh, are what's called keratinocytes. And these are the cells that really give the, the, the skin its main sort of substance uh, and its tension, if you like, or its, its, its ability to resist forces from the outside. Keratinocytes all kind of grow and cluster together um, on, on another tissue layer, which is called the basement membrane. And so because those cells are the most abundant in the skin, probably, um, they uh, the, the most common types of skin cancer that I've alluded to, squamous cell and basal cell carcinomas, they're both different types of skin cancer that arise in keratinocytes. So the idea is that a keratinocyte is exposed to the damaging effects of ultraviolet light and undergoes uh, transformation uh, to become a cancer. And we think that typically occurs just in a single cell. Uh, that then loses the ability to control its own growth, proliferates, uh, forms a lump or a tumour that we recognise when we look at it or feel it as a cancer. So squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas arise from keratinocytes, but there are other less common cell types that are present in normal skin. Probably the next most common are called melanocytes. And these are cells whose primary function is to produce pigment or color. And it's that color produced by melanocytes that gives our skin its color. Uh, in fact, melanocytes also line hair follicles and it's, it's the pigment that's produced by melanocytes also that gives our hair its color. 
So melanocytes are nowhere near as numerous as keratinocytes in the skin, and they tend to cluster in that deeper tissue layer that I mentioned before called the basement membrane. But they're very important in fulfilling that function of, of producing pigment, which we think is a way that the body is adapted to protect itself from the damaging effects of ultraviolet light. However, melanocytes themselves can be damaged by ultraviolet light, uh, and they can uh, undergo changes that result in the formation of cancer from them. And cancers that arise from melanocytes are called melanomas. So melanoma is the, the third most common type of skin cancer, and by far and away the most deadliest. The, the, the most deadly, it, it really behaves quite differently to the two keratinocyte origin cancers. Can you elaborate on why melanoma is such a deadly cancer? Uh, the truth is we don't fully know, but it probably relates to the fundamental biology of normal melanocytes in being cells that are quite good at moving and migrating through the skin. And, and what we think is the ability of melanocytes to do that is probably inherited or, or carried into those cells when they become cancerous as melanomas. Indeed, the cells from which from normal melanocytes arise when we're, you know, when we're growing up as babies um, inside the womb, uh, they arise from a very um, interesting subtype of cells in, in the growing embryo, which are called neural crest cells. Uh, these are fascinating cells, actually, that form all sorts of different and unusual structures in our bodies. But the cells from the neural crest in the embryo that become melanocytes in the skin are highly, highly migratory. In fact, they have to move quite a large distance um, within, the, within the developing um, embryo from a relatively central origin uh, to the edges where the skin is growing. So, so, so neural crest cells that become melanocytes themselves are highly migratory. They're very, very good at moving through tissues. And even once they get to the skin and become established as mature melanocytes in the adult skin or in the, in the, in the fully formed um, human being, they still seem to retain uh, quite a remarkable ability to be able to just move through tissues, uh, in this case, through the skin. And so, as so our idea is that, that that ability to move easily to, if you like, function very autonomously without needing to be surrounded by um, other, other similar types of cells seems to, we think in melanomas, enable them to relatively easily break away or, or, or break off from the main um, beginning tumour um, or to invade into uh, lymphatic vessels or into the bloodstream and to travel as single cells that are still viable and alive and, and they're still cancer cells and, and able to lodge and stick in other parts of the body where they can form secondary tumors. And melanocyte, melanoma cells that derive from melanocytes seem to be particularly good at doing this. Um, and that's in contrast to many other types of cancers where if you separate the cancer cells um, from, from the main tumour mass, they actually don't survive quite so well by themselves. And so those types of cancers tend to um, recur and spread uh, even after good surgical treatment. They don't seem to um, spread and, and lodge elsewhere so efficiently. 
In contrast, melanomas are unbelievably efficient um, in their ability uh, to, to lodge off and travel somewhere else and, and spread. Indeed, they, they can do it um, from you know, really very, very tiny, um, uh, tiny initial melanomas that first begin. Sometimes the melanomas are extremely small, but, but despite being so small, they still contain cells that have this remarkable and you know, to some degree quite frightening ability uh, to, to, to spread, to, to break off, spread and travel to other, to the other parts of the body very easily. And that, I assume, is why it's so important for everyone to, to check all the moles on their body because it doesn't have to be a big mole um, for it to become deadly. Absolutely. So that's a really key message that people need to be aware of. Um, so certainly bigger moles tend to be more likely to be melanomas. Certainly moles that start to you know, raise themselves up um, above the above the normal sort of layer of the skin um, and become lumps. Um, so there are some features in moles that are more suspicious than others for them being melanomas. Um, but but you're right. Um, moles can transform into melanomas uh, even even though they still remain very small. But the key point in terms of monitoring your own moles, um, the key word is change. So if you've had a mole that you've been, it's been there with you for a long time, or maybe several years, um, and, and relatively stable in its appearance, that then changes. Then that is the biggest sign of concern that it may be turning into a melanoma. And the change can manifest in many ways. Um, the mole can just get bigger. Um, it can start to develop some different colours within it, so sort of darker areas and lighter areas. Uh, the, the edge of it, having previously been relatively smooth, can start to become a bit, you know, kind of scraggy and ragged. Uh, as I said, it can sometimes raise up uh, above the normal surface level of the skin. Uh, and obviously other symptoms such as itching and bleeding uh, are also particularly concerning. So the important point to note is, is that change in a pre-existing mole, almost regardless of what that change is, means that you need to go and get a checkup. This episode was produced by me, Divya Krishnan, and Dave Rogers. Thanks to all of our guest speakers, Melissa Miles, Ian Larson, Stefan Nebel, Mark Shackleton, and Mubda Rai. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and or drop us a five-star review on wherever you're listening to this podcast. The track you are hearing under the credits today is Summer Days by Melbourne Act, Them Swoops. Walk, talk,